you know this as well and listeners would the data centers are this they're one of these things that it's like blockchain or something you know it's like it's one of these things that people are really into they really are interested in um and that's you know they, they are interesting i mean that's why we're researching them they are this like this newish strange phenomenon of Patrick Bresnahan, an Irish geographer at the National University of Ireland, Maynooth, with whom Lucas and I had the pleasure to speak alongside his colleague Patrick Brody, a media studies scholar at McGill University in Montreal. Patty and Pat, as we'll refer to them throughout the episode, have been researching a topic that Lucas and I have been captivated by for several years now, the proliferation of data centers and associated logistical infrastructures in the rural spaces of Northern Europe. In Ireland, as across the region, these spaces are coded by investment promotion agencies as cool environments, with low energy costs and plentiful water resources, but also far removed from the politics of urban labor unrest and social movement activism. For our conversation, we took as our main point of departure an article that the Patricks had penned for the journal Environment and Planning E, in which they sketched the intertwined and seemingly boundless growth of data processing capacity and wind energy infrastructure across the Irish countryside. Faced with the pressure to help multinationals like Apple and Amazon reach their targets of 100% renewable energy by the next decade, the Irish government has signed off on the growth of wind farms in some of the island's most ecologically sensitive areas, including amidst peat bogs that store carbon, which can be released into the atmosphere upon being disturbed. The race to provide green energy to multinationals, driven by politicians with their political compasses oriented towards Brussels and their support bases in wealthy urban areas, has turned many of Ireland's rural residents decidedly against wind energy development. If not altogether, then certainly in its current corporate form. To understand this present growth of wind turbines and data centers across rural Ireland, I thought it would be useful to take a bit of a step back into Irish economic and environmental history, not least because the country's pivotal role in the Euro-Atlantic economy is so seldom understood. We discussed in some detail how the period of capitalist development in late 20th century Ireland, conventionally referred to as the Celtic Tiger, needs to be grasped not only in terms of a lenient tax regime, but in reference to the Irish state's establishment of favorable environmental conditions for multinational corporations, particularly those in the pharmaceutical sector. Here we built on an understanding of the apparatuses of the Irish state as machines for the attraction of foreign direct investment, emphasizing the socio-ecological dimensions of capitalist development and the implications of such a reconceptualization for the study of environmental politics and urban-rural relations. The discussion of urban-rural imaginaries and their place in Irish literature and film serves as a short but highly rewarding detour on our way to the consideration of another contradictory phenomenon in Irish spatial politics, the sometimes fervent and widespread support for multinational investment in rural areas. Here, Pat shares with us some insights from his field research in Athenry, a small town in the west of Ireland where many of the residents mobilized in favor of Apple's investment in a billion-dollar data center and against 
the so-called culture of objection that many urbanites see as characteristic of rural social movements. This part of the conversation troubles many of our usual assumptions about the supposed top-down imposition of the rule of multinationals, forcing us to rethink the political culture of neoliberalism through an emphasis on its refraction from below. This troubling of our assumptions regarding the motivations of those involved in social mobilization serves as a point of departure for the last segment of the episode, wherein we take the lead from an article Patty wrote on the potential for an articulation between urban anti-austerity protests and those organized by farmers facing shrinking margins from meat processing plants and supermarkets and contradictory pressures from the European Union, tighter environmental regulations on the one hand and enhanced competition from South American mega ranches on the other. Rather than dismissing these forms of protest as inherently regressive or anti-environmental, Patty argues that a rural-urban articulation between these supposedly opposed movements may be the only viable path forward for red and green politics in the national context where environmentalism remains an elite project and where an anti-capitalist agenda has yet to break through the discourse. So we met when I, I'm, I was doing my PhD in film and media studies at Concordia University here in Montreal. And I was doing research on Ireland and um, was kind of very much leaning. My, one of my chapters is in my dissertation is on data centers. And I was very much kind of leaning more in this direction, you know, especially kind of looking at like territory and finance and spatial development and things like this. So I was kind of reading a lot of these, a lot of Irish geographers um, with whom uh, Patty is very affiliated, you know, and, uh, but so I ended up working, I got a grant to go to Trinity, Trinity College Dublin to do a project uh, with uh, Phil Lawton, who is at uh, Trinity. And while I was there, you know, like he was my supervisor for this grant. And then, you know, he was just kind of like, you need to talk to uh, Patty, who is doing, who is interested in the same kind of stuff that you're working on. And uh, yeah, just kind of took off from there because we kind of just, just after a few conversations, we kind of started the, with the germ of this project. And I think the first thing we did was actually write that Irish Times op-ed that was about just kind of how data centers were coming to kind of dictate uh, Irish energy policy around renewables, uh, especially. And then, yeah, that uh, kind of grew into an article. And then we've kind of just been, uh, it's just been kind of a chain reaction. We've just kind of been doing various things since then. Um, So I don't know if you have anything you want to add to that. I was, it was kind of like match made in heaven. Well, at least for me, maybe because I was, uh, I, I had kept an eye on the data center thing, but just by like reading a few bits in the newspaper and hearing about it. And it was just this, it was just this huge thing that was happening and no one was seemingly writing about it in Ireland. I mean, people had been writing about it elsewhere. And then I feel it told me that Pat was coming and he did stuff in data centers and I was really excited. Um, because it seemed like, um, this was a, you know, a chance to sort of properly delve into it, or at least it was the kind of instigation to, to, to start doing something. And like, like Pat said, the Irish Times piece, which was really, you know, pretty simple and straightforward and not based on any research of, of any, you know, particular depth, um, 
you know, that also, that ended up being quite a significant thing. I mean, you know, we got quite a lot of traction from that. We were interested in the data centers and that was what we were talking about. But then the, the data centers are part of this, you know, more extended, extensive set of infrastructures, namely around energy. Um, and so that's the energy production, which is, uh, you know, you know, supposed to be or, or projected to be more and more from wind farms, but also the grids, the things that connect mm -hmm. the substations, um, increasingly things like battery farms. So there is now campaigns against these battery farms that are that there's been incidents I think in, in Germany where they've exploded and they've been very toxic. So there's a whole set of associated infrastructures that are part of this low low carbon transition and, and whatever. But the, there hadn't been that much opposition to data centers per se. There had been one issue which we might talk about in a bit around Athens Rye that was very mm. high profile. But where we were seeing. Uh, objections and some kind of like on the ground sort of politics was around the wind farms. Mm. So it, it seemed that this was an important connection to make in terms of thinking about the broader politics of, of, of the data centers and their, the extensive kind of infrastructures that enable them. About, I think, three years ago, Amazon Web Services had entered into a price agreement with the wind developers. And this had been celebrated in the national media by the then minister, uh, Richard Bruton, as being signs or evidence of tech companies' commitment to green energy, low carbon transition, so on. And the Fin Valley uh, uh, Action Group, um, they uh, came out, had a press release saying this was news to them that this wind farm was being built because it hadn't even got planning permission. It was still going through the planning process because they had objected to it. And part of their objection was around the fact that this was not a suitable terrain for it to be built on. It's a peat bog. Mm. Uh, it's called a mean bog wind farm. I mean, th there's something in that name. And th it had been uh, uh, pointed out, I mean, it's a bit retrospective now, but when it happened, the peat landslide, a number of sort of peat ecologists or experts, you know, there was quite a lot on social media about it, said that they had known this was going to happen or anyone who had looked would have known this was going to happen and they the Finn Valley Wind Farm and Action Group had put this in in their objections that this was going to happen so um, it's not to say that it was definitely going to happen but there was a, a group that had um, you know got the evidence seemingly and they had put in a formal objection and yet it, it was it was going ahead um, despite that uh, the other element to this which it's not in the article because it, it I mean, this all happened after the article was published, but the um, the developer of the wind farm, which is uh, Enerco, I think that the subsidiary is Invis that's in in, in Meanbog, in Donegal. So Invis is, is the one on the ground. They released a letter, which is dated the 12th of November, and the, the peatland site happened on the 13th of November, so it's not really that clear. But the letter arrived to houses in the area, a day or two after the peat landslide. And the letter was notifying residents that a second wind farm was being planned and would be built. And so this was just like, um, you could imagine, you know, uh, insult on injury. Uh, after the, I mean, if you've seen the videos online, I mean, it really is like something from, uh, you know, it's like apocalyptic, you know, it's, it's the whole mountain is just sliding down. Um, and they're doing, the EPA are doing their investigations, um, and I'm sure they'll come out and say there was multiple causes, but it seems, and again, experts have 
have said this, that the most likely factor is the, the construction of that wind farm. step back and, and uh, sort of say something about the, the tradition, which you two are writing in as well. And, and I think you're indebted quite a bit to, to Shuri Deckard in, in her exploration of understanding the, the Celtic tiger phenomenon in Ireland as, as foundationally a phenomenon of ecological experimentation as well in addition to all the state policy around uh, tax incentives and labor market policy and, and um, all of these things. So uh, do you think that there's growing awareness um, both in, in academia and in the, the public at large of the, the foundational role of, of ecological experimentation in, in the transformation of, of the Irish economy and, and society? I mean, that's interesting to, to frame like our work within that, because I think that I think that you're right. Like, yeah, we we owe a lot to, um, you know, people that were, again, trying to have tried to frame the Celtic Tiger as something that was fundamentally kind of arising out of, um, you know, quite destructive dynamics of globalization in general, like in mm -hmm. Ireland. But I think that's something that we're also that's interested us for a while is also kind of doing a prehistory of the Celtic tiger a little bit as well in the sense that like, you know, again, what Ireland's kind of seeing now is a direct result of the Celtic tiger, but it's also a direct result of like much longer dynamics that go back to, you know, the development, the developmental post-colonial state, the post-developmental state, you know, as it arose, like as the country liberalized and then also, um, and this is kind of more related to stuff we're doing now that might be worth talking about later, but also kind of like a longer history of colonial development and the colonial transformation of the landscape that the Irish state kind of inherited, um, but then also like intensified, obviously, in like a number of, of ways um, in the service of, you know, modernization, um, eco-modernization and things like this. Um, so I don't know if you want to expand on that a little bit. No, I think that's exactly the point I'd make. And I think that actually, um, I think actually there's not very much work mm. is part of the problem. So Sheree is, is, has done that, you know, she wrote that great article, um, which was a kind of a, a, an overview and it was really helpful and drew a, quite a lot on the work actually of a guy called Rob Allen, who is not an academic, was a, a kind of activist scholar involved in the anti-globalization movement in the 90s and, and early 2000s. And he wrote a book called um, No Global, which was published in the early 2000s, maybe late 90s. But it was drawn, it's, a, it's an incredible book published by Pluto Press. And it's it's not like a particularly academic book. It's not framed in, in like with a lot of theory. Um, it's very empirical and descriptive and the chapters are all about particular episodes or particular sites and stories. But the empirical stuff is drawn from interviews. So he was very much involved and he has all this incredible firsthand, you know, quotes and, and, and things. And I think for me especially, I studied sociology. I, I did my undergrad in, in, in Ireland and, and, and I did my, my PhD here in um, sociology and it was environmental sociology. And my supervisor was Hilary Tovey, who was an environmental sociologist and had written a lot in the 80s and 90s about, I guess, kind of, you know, Ireland's modernization, um, 
kind of capitalist restructuring and uh, agriculture, uh, you know, farms and stuff like that. But she'd also written about shifts in kind of environmental discourse. And she had written, she wrote this, again, interesting, important article, distinguishing between a kind of official environmentalism, which was kind of urban-based, scientific, professional, and what she called a popular environmentalism, which was a kind of a a more grassroots, localized, uh, community-based objections to the siting of toxic uh, installations or industries, particularly pharmaceuticals, uh, in the 80s. And I didn't really engage with that that much during my PhD, but it's only in the last couple of years looking at data centers and the tech industry and foreign direct investment and the whole sort of apparatus of the state. Like Ireland is, you, you cannot distinguish it from foreign direct investment since the 60s. That's been its its sort of, um, its soul. And I think because it's become so much the kind of atmosphere, the general culture, which is what Pat has written about so well, the kind of climate, you know, which, which is not just the, the you know the, the climate in terms of CO two, but the, the kind of business climate, it's so much just sort of part of the 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 the, 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 the you know existing in Ireland that no one seems to have really studied it in in a way of, 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 of trying to look at this sort of history of how, particularly from an ecological background, environmental background, the ways in which the state has not just enabled, you know, global capital through tax and, um, you know, planning and other kinds of policies, but also through resources and infrastructures and sinks for pollution. And that way of telling the story of Ireland's sort of modernization development is is kind of much closer then to thinking about other post-colonial countries. And so it, it really starts to change the way that you start to think about then the kinds of politics that happen here and the cultures of politics and how they, you know, maybe have more in common with some of the the, the, the analysis and and, 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 you know, work that's done around, you know, Global South and, you know, environmental, environmental justice and so on. And that for me has been a real eye opener. And I think that in terms of where we go it, with our work, but also if, if, you know, master's students or PhD students, I'm always encouraging them to try and mine that archive a little bit better. Um, and I actually have a master's student who did a bit of work on this and he found out some amazing stuff about Pfizer when it came to our, I haven't told you about this, Pat, I don't think, but when Pfizer came to Ireland in the 60s and they set up in Cork, there was whole new water infrastructure built for Pfizer and there was also campaigns against it and so on. But the Limerick, the manager of the Limerick County Council in 1976 said that as well as land banks being set aside for foreign investment and companies, the Irish state should talk about water banks because water was so important for attracting these companies, pharmaceuticals, but other industries. And I think if you think about that in the 70s, there was an article or it came out in December just before Christmas where the KPMG global assets manager was interviewed and said that Ireland was missing out on FDI because it wasn't able to help global corporates meet zero carbon emissions targets. So then it's about wind. And so it's this, you've got land banks, water banks, and you've got kind of like atmospheric energy banks, mm-hmm. but it's all part of this longer story. And you know, it, 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 you can't really talk about what's happening today with data and, and wind energy without understanding that it's just so embedded in, in you know, local authority, every level, every scale of politics and decision making. And 
you know so i think that is a it's a really important part of the article um and and the way local and the way politics have been rescaled and and restructured as well i mean i think one of the really interesting things that uh you point out uh pat in in another of, in another of your articles perhaps the culture machine one is is that the you have the department of environment climate and communications so all of these functions are now integrated, n- not only in the ways that you describe their their functional integration in terms of infrastructure, but also within the state as well. Like Eamon Ryan is responsible also for communications data centers in addition to, to climate policy and environmental policy also. Yeah. yeah, and this is something that I always think is interesting. And again, coming as a uh, as a relative outsider to Ireland, right? Like, you know, I, I didn't grow up there. I, you know, it's just something that I've um, been, it's a place that I've like been studying for a while now, I guess, but this has always been fascinating to me to a degree that I actually don't know how, if this is unique to Ireland, like the changing of these departments over and over again, where it's like, they kind of have like minor shifts depending on who's in government, right. Where it's like, you might have the minister for culture, arts and the Gwail talked, or you might have the minister for culture, arts and something else. And the Gwail talked gets put under some other umbrella based on a certain strategy. Right. And the minister, so this minister for arts uh, or for what is it? Communications, climate and, um, I can't remember these. Yeah. And the environment. Yeah. It's just kind of hilarious again. And as a media studies scholar, you know, this is, um, there's been this turn towards like environmental media studies, which is all about atmospheric communication and these sorts of things. And it's just kind of hilarious, you know, seeing a state department that's genuinely set up like that. I mean, I guess just one last thing I would say is that um, this isn't just direct state departments. It's also in the semi-state organizations that we talk about a fair bit, Um, which, again, semi-state companies in Ireland seem to be something that's incredibly unique and then also so directly tied into this kind of like FDI based economy um, in that one of like the first phone calls I did for my field work on Athenry was I called uh, Quilcha office, mm-hmm. um, you know, the ministry for forestry or not the ministry, the semi-state company in, in charge of forestry. And I got a guy on the phone who was just, you know, kind of asking me a bunch of questions. He was more curious why I was calling him. And he ended up basically asking if I knew anybody who might be interested in like building data centers on Quilcher properties by the end of the call. And it was just one of these things where it's, again, these kinds of boundaries are really, really blurred um, kind of between the public and the private and also between FDI and like, you know, the everyday management of resource banks um, in a way that was just really, really kind of uh, jarring uh, to approach and kind of in a way that it gets like Patty was kind of suggesting like these the embeddedness of these things is like, you know, it's just these like really messy knots that you really have to try to untangle um, whenever you start dealing with like land and, uh, you know, spatial development in Ireland and really fascinating and bizarre, but like really, really um, exciting way in some ways, you know, but. There's also the IDA, which maybe Pat could say something more about. I'd say you know more about them than I do. But it's the Industrial Development uh, Agency Authority. 
but they're this sort of overseer of the they were set up it was in 19 late 1950s yeah with the with the this the goal of attracting foreign direct investment foreign investment and uh they've been enormously successful but they they i mean it's hard to know exactly what they do but they definitely can pull strings and and hold a lot of sway um but it's murky yeah it's definitely murky because they don't have response i mean at least with quilche it's forestry Gordon mm-hmm. amona it's like peat bogs and uh but ida is just this sort of all, all present you know everywhere yeah yeah, between like the IDA and Enterprise Ireland, their their jurisdiction, you know, like one way I was trying to think about them one time uh, as like kind of like <laughs> to use the U.S. example in something way more exaggerated, but like the CIA and the FBI, right? You know, where it's like the IDA operates in Ireland, whereas Enterprise Ireland supposedly operates outside of it. Mm. But this, it's way, way messier than that, right? You know, if you start getting into like, if you go to these like, I don't know, these weird industry conferences. And if you start like following the communication lines of these organizations, they're working within and without, and they kind of just work hand in hand. And sometimes, you know, like, I think the thing with the IDA is it's very directly responsible for land, mm-hmm. but the way that Enterprise Ireland just kind of like shamelessly just, um, you know, kind of promotes Ireland as this space for kind of endless investment and profit. Uh, very much feeds and helps the way that the IDA then just, you know, pulls strings and clears the way for these companies to, you know, kind of build whatever they want. Hmm. I, I wanted to kind of uh, jump in there and, and, and um, starting from something that I found very interesting about the, the Mobius strip uh, paper that you said, because I, coming to this, I, uh, when I still know very little about the history of Ireland, and I think that's, that's, that's very fascinating. And there's something I always struggle with, like, how do you explore these themes? Because there seems to be something that's so important in like going in the nitty gritty. And then there seems to be this importance to like zoom out again into like, and 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 I I think part of the project of this podcast is like to struggle for a way of telling these stories that is that uh, that is kind of maybe it's a kind of a vertiginal optics that that or uh, um, kind of lens that 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 produces. But so um, what I found really interesting is how you talked about like how you talked about Ireland being positioned as this sort of zone. Um, for experimentation, for experimentation of ecological regimes. And uh, I very much like that kind of uh, phrase as well, ecological regimes, because thinking about, of course, this is actually something where Will and I have done our own uh, we've we've gone to some academic conferences uh, presented about data centers as well, and something that like has drawn at that time that drew us really into this question of data centers was that this fairly recent phenomenon has developed such a force in uh, um, in making legible certain uh, spaces, certain te- not just spaces, but territories, also social territories in new ways. And you also talk about how you there, there's this one quote that I really like from your paper where you say, data analytics is to ambient energy what geology is to the earth, both render the world legible to capital. And so there's something in the 
and 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 what Will and I did like a couple of years back was just that we were kind of baffled or or just kind of intrigued by the way in which the the like the mere invocation of like the internet uh, was able to sort of usher in uh, forms of development and 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 sort of almost like. Um, make certain spaces visible as spaces for grand potential and sort of like come with this notion of re revitalizing struggling economies and whatever. And the internet is the answer to everything. This kind of like this, this vague notion of the internet. And then one of the other um, kind of bits that we really, uh, that we really latched onto was the, I don't know if you, <laughs> if you saw this, but it was, it was like almost 10 years ago at this point that Google came out with this, uh, with this photo shoots, <laughs> with these series of, 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 of high resolution pictures of data centers, this very aesthetic, like, and it was called something like this, is where the internet lives, the home of the internet. And there was this kind of vision emerging of the data center as this natural, as the natural body the natural home of this natural internet, which was so contingent and so recent. I mean, this is something that sort of bloomed within the last 20 years. And now within the next couple of years, this kind of ecological regime that has developed out of, out of this configuration of, on the one hand, this vague notion of the internet, and then the data center as the seemingly natural body of that internet, that that now makes a claim in a couple of years on 30% of Ireland's energy. So that's like a very, I like how, and, and so I always come from the place of just trying to comprehend how these, how, um, in a way, I guess the sort of the very, very material and the semiotic really come together in 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 disclosing certain spaces as ripe for innovation, as ripe for experimentation, and that's um, that's I guess why I because uh, I I'd, I'd never. I hadn't known that much about Ireland, but it makes total sense with Ireland and the way you talk about Ireland is like both the gateway to Europe and then also now all of a sudden appearing in the form of this, like, it's almost like maybe Ireland wasn't the prettiest girl at the party for a while. And now it's, now it's uh, well sought after for these new assets that are now appearing almost magically that maybe uh, that now all of a sudden become uh, are disclosed as accessible to capital, like wind and like natural coolness and these kinds of things. So, um, yeah, if you want to jump in there, I'm not sure if I have a question, but um, maybe this theme of like how these kinds of how Ireland all of a sudden becomes visible as like particularly attractive in this manner. I might say a couple of things and then Pat could maybe say a couple of things. Um, well, firstly, the ecological regime, that's Sheree Descartes' term. Um, and it is it is very useful. And I guess what she traces in that, that paper that we, um, we cite is that, as you said, Ireland has been this site of experimentation, you know, ecological experimentation going back to... Um, you know, uh, the, the beginnings of colonialism, so the sort of 16th century, 17th century. And, you know, part of that has been traced by other people too. You know, as geographers, there's a lot of interest or attention on maps. So the first, um, you know, the first mapping of a, of a, of a kind of a, of a territory of that size in the world, it was, it was Ireland, William Petty's survey in 1652, I think it was. Um, 
And so, you know, that's obviously a very important technology uh, for, you know, you know, colonialism and also for, for capitalism and the development of capitalism, the ability to make visible, uh, legible, uh, measurable, commodifiable, you know, land, uh, and not just land, but these, the surveys that were done, it was after Cromwellian, the Cromwellian war. So Ireland had been, you know, raised, it had been crushed. Uh, and partly w- what happened in the aftermath of that was that Cromwell had to pay back the, the, the soldiers that had fought, but also the, uh, uh, the, the people who'd financed this, this war of conquest and the way he was paying them back was by giving them possessions in Ireland. And the only way he could do that in a kind of a, uh, a kind of a formal way was by mapping it, by surveying what assets were there and how they could be divvied up. So that there is this very, you know, very long history of how those technologies then get exported to, you know, India and other possessions and, and whatever. So that was that. Um, so, and then jumping a separate point, which maybe hopefully touches on what you were saying is about this, the visibility and Ireland as being this sort of location for data centers. I think, you know, part of that is around, um, the, you know, the, the, the work of the IDA, which obviously does a huge amount to, to sell, to sell it to, to tech companies that are, you know, able to, you know, compare because, you know, places like Sweden, Denmark, um, you know, Germany, I guess, uh, you know, you know, Canada, all over the world, there are places who are competing for, for, for data centers. Um, I don't know why, <laughs> you know, they don't provide any jobs. Uh, they take loads of energy, but anyway, there is this competition. So like all sorts of transnational competition, the, the tech companies don't have to do a whole lot because it, you know, the, 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 the governments of these countries and these states are, are vying for their attention. Um, but I think the point you make about the kind of internet and the naturalness of the internet, I think that that is a really core key point because certainly the reason why we wrote that initial article for the Irish Times was that we recognized that we could write an article for Environmental Planning E or any other kind of critical journal. And there was, you know, a debate we wanted to be involved in. And there was people who were trying to theorize this stuff and talk about that stuff. And that's good. But there is also... Uh, like a dearth. I mean, it's it's definitely changing, but there, there is a, you know, there is a sense in which there's so much kind of, you know, the, you know, the, the, the role of aesthetics, I mean, it's also ideology, but aesthetics around environmental problems, you know, I mean, it's so you know, clear that like, you know, factories belching out smoke, you know, fossil fuels is, 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 is you know, um, whereas data centers, tech, the cloud, you know, services, knowledge, data, it, it is this, it has this character of immateriality. Um, and it is that quality of the kind of atmospheric, of the ambient, of the ethereal, which isn't just accidental, you know, that the, these kinds of, 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 of discourses have been developed by, by that industry. Um, but it's very hard to puncture that or to disrupt that that image. And I think that's why the meme bog, going back to that, the landslide is so important. Because, you know, you can say 30% of the grid is going to be taken up by data centers. And that is a figure that is quite awesome. But I, I don't know to what extent the calculations of energy and emissions is a particularly politicizing 
mm. you know, negotiatory uh, mm. you know, mm. knowledge. It's 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 sort of it's 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 equally intangible. Whereas the the meme bog that was a wind farm that was being financed by Amazon Web Services to to to. To, to power its its data center operations, and here was it was a very localized event, but it was something that was very tangible. Um, and I think something that Pat and I are interested, and in, we don't explore it so much in that article, but it's in how these kinds of maybe localized politics can can disrupt and uh, you know object, but in a in a material way because of questions of landscape and locality and place can disrupt this kind of smooth, uh, ethereal, um, you know, functioning of the, of the kind of, you know, data, green energy sort of media strip. I think that's partly why we're drawn to that, that kind of politics. Yeah. To kind of add to that, there's a couple things there. Cause I completely agree this, like I was, I've had the term aesthetic in my head and then I kind of heard like a, a chorus of like film and media studies scholars being like, Oh, that's not necessarily aesthetics. It's something different. Right. But it's like, there is something <laughs> to the, like the, the, I think that this is something that like film and media studies has really taken up with data center discourses. Cause like, you know, is this um like, I think you were saying Lucas, the like uh, the material as well as the semiotic kind of function of what the internet looks like and like what it does. Right. Because like back in, I think there's, I think this was in 2013, um, Alison Carruth wrote this article about the, about exactly this, about the green image of the cloud. Um, And it was, you know, it's very much like an analysis of some of these representations of data centers, of some of these, um, you know, the way that they, that tech companies manage to paint their operations as green, right? Not necessarily getting into, you know, exactly what the energy politics are or let, you know, she kind of like traces what they were at that point. But the fact that they're just getting more and more intense, right? Like that these numbers are just growing, that like, you know, these infrastructures are just inflating, um, you know, since then is something that I think that I felt, you know, like I've, I definitely contributed to this conversation about like the aesthetics of data centers and the way that these things are promoted, the way they look. And, you know, there's a lot of people that have written about these kinds of like semiotic, you know, the promotion of certain states of them, you know, like Astorondero in Sweden, um, Alex Johnson in Iceland, you know, and it's quite funny how it's pretty similar across these different like kind of contexts, you know, obviously just instrumentalizing different histories and different kinds of discourses. But I think that the what was so ex, what was most exciting about doing this stuff on wind and kind of expanding, um, looking at the kind of like supporting infrastructures as well as the externalities of data centers, like physically, was something that to me kind of corrected a little bit of a like the way that film and media studies can sometimes analyze phenomena and be like, this is bad, this still looks bad, the aesthetics of this are bad, right? And then kind of being like, here's how we need to understand it through these lenses. Right. To me, it was kind of like that hits a dead end at a certain point. And then these people like, you know, um, as this discourse has gone on, uh, you know, it's kind of gotten picked up by these various other fields that have looked at the kind of like really, really material physical externalities of data centers that aren't just 
the internet you know it's actually like you know we're trying to get it it's an assemblage of like a lot of other things that sometimes you really don't expect right if you kind of follow a thread from you know an infrastructural route from a data center you might end up somewhat you might end up at a bog slide in Donegal you know which is just something that's really um I think important in terms of the way that these companies, especially in a small country like Ireland, are exerting absolutely enormous amounts of power and influence. You know, you can't just look at the data center itself, right? And I think that this is something that I think we're all kind of getting at. we've moved a little bit to focus on um, I think it's mentioned in the paper to the, the Midlands and the, the bogs so these are the kind of um, the raised bogs in the middle of Ireland which have been since the 50s 60s they've been uh, you know extracted for for turf for peat milled peat which is then used to power um, power stations to create electricity and then also as kind of a household domestic fuel and that industry a bit like the coal industry in, in Germany or in, 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 in the States or whatever that industry has been kind of declining but is finally ending basically now Bordemona only a month ago said they've stopped all turf cutting so Bordemona is the semi-state company that has been responsible for um uh, uh sort of exploiting the the bogs and uh the 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 power stations that use the the turf to create the electricity they're also shutting down so there's something like 2,000 workers that are going to lose their jobs and then workers who have been taking redundancy for the last number of years and those bogs which are sort of uh, drained bogs so they're not even bogs anymore they're called cutaway they're just these kind of post-industrial they're called brownfield sites by, by the state one of the possibilities in terms of how those sort of you know ruins can be regenerated into a new sort of you know, productive landscape um, is to attract data centers to locate there. But what's interesting about that is that the the, the peat industry is being shut down. You know, partly the, the peat's running out and it's not, you know, profitable anymore. But the, the, the argument that's being put forward is it's about climate change and, you know, we can't burn this dirty fuel. But so we're getting rid of that, which is aesthetically, you know, it's dirty. You know, it really is. You know, it's 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 the bog. And that's being shut down. 2000 workers lose their jobs and it's replaced by a big metal box that is so, you know, clean and, and, and svelte. But the electricity that powers that is 60 percent. Uh, from fossil fuels, which is gas or coal that's imported from Colombia or wherever. And so it's, it's, it's much worse. But because of the displacement of and, and the kind of the extensiveness of the kind of geography now of that data center, it's less visible. And that's not being picked up, really. Mm. you know by by anybody and you know it's got a very concrete demand and it's it's something that could be very much connected to workers you know in that, in that sense of like i don't want the peat industry to keep going it's bad you know it's, it's bad for the, the climate it's not a good energy source there's all sorts of problems with it but you know there are workers who are losing their jobs and data centers are not going to replace those but, yeah yeah the, the the peat industry certainly does not fit within the the green image that the IDA and, and other semi-state bodies have been uh, stretching to put forward for a long time. One of the things you write is that this quote-unquote green image is rooted in a rural-urban imaginary within Ireland, one which positions the rural as quote backward and pastoral, 
even as it plays host to the activities and infrastructures that enable advanced modernity and overdevelopment that benefit the few and exclude the many, including wind turbines and fiber optic cables. Fast forward to the present, and it is predictable to find prevailing public discourses promoting Ireland's, quote, cool natural climate as a primary factor in reducing cooling costs, which are huge factors in data centers, energy consumption. And earlier, you had mentioned that the KPN KPMG report and, and this idea that Ireland needs to clean itself up in, in all these different ways in order to be able to continue attracting uh, foreign direct investment um, in the way it has. Um, but one of the themes that, that comes across in, in the piece is, is this rural-urban divide. Um, and that also is evident in, in Patty. I, I read this article that you wrote with um, Ariel Hess on uh, infrastructural and intestinal decay and dealing with uh, contamination of, of water sources across rural Ireland and just how much more uh, the West was affected by it than, than anywhere else in the country, um, the rural areas that is. Um, and on this question of, of the urban-rural divide, uh, how have the, these groups objecting to, to wind turbine development been been depicted at large in in the Irish media um, over over the past um, ten years or so, and, and especially now as the as the climate crisis gets more and more severe, how is that depiction uh, maybe changing or ramping up? Um, do you do you want to? You're the media studies. <laughs> I mean, I can say a little something again, and I keep catching myself. Um, I have this habit of throwing media studies under the bus as soon as I start talking about it. But, you know, it's uh, obviously there's there's reasons why, um, you know, I'm where I am. And one of these things is about the, the so I think the urban rural divide is something that, again, I, I kind of came to from the lens of these like the way that people studying representations of Ireland have kind of looked at, you know, the countryside is romantic. The countryside is uh, the place of the true authentic Ireland, you know, quite conservative um, sorts of cultural nationalist uh, discourses about like Irish film and media have quite often looked to the countryside as a place where contentions around, uh, you know, the I Irish national character have taken place. Right. Um, and this kind of goes off of, you know, histories of the, you know, cultural histories of seeing of, uh, you know, kind of the rural character of Ireland as being that place. Right. Um, and it's just, it's activated in ways that people see as pro problematic and especially like U S depictions of the countryside. Right. You know, you have the quiet man as like the most famous, uh, bad object in Irish film and media studies, um, as depicting this like romantic backwards landscape where everything is kind of crystallized in a certain time of incredibly regressive, um, you know, character attitudes and things like this. Uh, that, you know, the Irish American male can just return to, you know, it's his promised land. Right. Um, and anyway, so this is, these sorts of things are kind of, uh, these discourses come from a kind of literary approach to the rural landscape, to the romantic, you know, kind of countryside and stuff. And so I kind of came at this, you know, I remember the first 
place that I kind of encountered these discourses was in a Luke Gibbons essay. Luke Gibbons is an Irish literary scholar. And he was doing an analysis of IBA promotions of the, of, you know, Irish of uh, places to set up your business in the 1970s. So kind of like these really early depictions of it. And he was like, kind of said, they're advertising it as though they're advertising it to tourists, but what they're doing is advertising it as a landscape that nobody actually lives in, right? Somewhere that you can come, you can visit, it's beautiful, but then also, you know, you'll... Uh, encounter no problems with labor. You're in, you'll encounter none of the problems with making money that come with modernity and organized labor and things like this, right? Um, so this was something that that was kind of where I came into this. And then, you know, we've kind of been uh, again, kind of trying to trace this longer prehistory of this, which come from you know rural places having never really trusted whichever state formation comes in to try to govern, right? And it's quite ambivalent. And we were saying that this is a word that we kind of use a lot because we're not quite, still not quite sure how to pin it down. But the, you know, there's a, there's this really good article by a guy, by a literary scholar called Mark Quigley, who was doing this, uh, who wrote this article on uh, Thomas O'Krean's like autoethnography of uh, of his life on the Blasket Islands, which is a really really like rural, now abandoned um, island formation off the far west coast of Kerry, and he tells this anecdote about the fisher about like the uh, Blasket Island fishermen coming to shore, and the like post colonial tax collectors being like, hey, you know, here's the deal. Here's the new drill with the post, you know, with our, uh, you know, you have to pay your taxes or something like this. And they were like, we're going to seize your boats until you comply. And instead of, you know, being like protesting this instead of, you know, kicking up, they essentially just left their boats to rot in the harbor and got back to the island in a different way. Right. And this to us was something that like this character of quite ambivalent, like very like kind of case to case grievances, this of which come from just a fundamental distrust or non-recognition of whichever kind of state authority shows up was something that we've been trying to kind of get at in terms of these uh, urban rural divides. And then especially how they're kind of playing out now with how um, kind of like urban protest groups and urban environmentalists and stuff tend to see these like anti-wind farm protests as backwards, as naive and these sorts of things. So, and I guess this is where Patty can kind of come in and update a little bit. <laughs> well, there's, there's so many things to say about that rural thing, I think. And one thing, just to, to go off what you were saying about Thomas and I remember um, before I did my PhD, when I was deciding whether to do a PhD, I went woofing, you know, working on organic farms, this thing on... Um, on an island called Cape Clear, which is off the coast of Cork. And I went there, I was there for maybe three months. And there was a guy I met called Rossi, who I never met subsequently after that, but he was writing up his master's dissertation while on the island too. And his dissertation was about Thomas O'Crean. And Thomas O'Crean was this, you know, man who lived in the Blasket Islands in the 1920s and just before that, so early part of the 20th century. And he wrote this famous book called The Islandman, which is this island, this autoethnography. And it's seen very much in this tradition of a kind of, it's like an artifact, like an anthropological artifact. It gives this insight into a former way of life. And the other one is Peg Sayers. There's a number of them from the Blasket Islands. But Rossi, this guy I met, was trying to make an argument that Thomas O'Crean was writing at the same time as Joyce was writing Ulysses. 
and Ulysses is recognized as this modernist masterpiece and the Islandman is dismissed as this anthropological artifact. And his argument was that actually Thomas Crean had to be seen as a bit as more as modernist. And it was partly through looking at how Thomas Crean didn't spend his whole life on the island. He'd traveled. He'd, and I think for me, like, you know, it's it's funny how these things then come back to you. You know, when you, you read this article by Mike Quigley, but I do think the thing that's important, whether or not that's that's, you know, I, I never read his dissertation, but I think that the the point that there is an intelligence to. Uh, you know that 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 piece of literature that there is this sort of knowingness, I think, is interesting for the kinds of politics that we're talking about too. That they're not just this, um, um, I don't know, some kind of, uh, you know, material, uh, uh, you know, brute or brutish, just sort of like you know, resistance. But you know that there 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 is resistance to some kind of incursion, something that comes from outside. There's a term I think that. Hilary Tovey uses is a big bigness, opposition to bigness, whether it's the state or it's some kind of global corporation, whatever, comes into this place, you know, without any, you know, you know, undemocratic in, in the sense that, you know, these people have no say over what's happening. And um, there's a resistance to that, sure, but the kinds of tactics that are used, which are this kind of... Um, uh, uh, kind of obtuseness is the word I think that we were using. This kind of ob- being obtuse of, of being kind of using, you know, almost being idiotic in a way, you know. And obviously that ties to other. You know, people have written about Bartleby, and and I know that Isabel Stengers has written about this figure of the idiot um, that is seen by by the people who are trying to build to to, to do the projects, whether it's the state or whether it's 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 a private uh, act. It's seen as being backward and ignorant, but there's a knowingness to that. I think is 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 at least a speculation or a proposition that's worth pursuing, and uh, that's basically where we've gotten to. Um, in terms of the, the initial question you asked about how these groups are seen, I would say that they're not seen. Mm. Um, they're not reported on. Uh, you know, you know, you, you look at the Finn Valley. I, I'd say that one place they do appear is in things like the uh, Farmers Journal which is a very important publication for rural uh, constituent, you know, people, but you, you wouldn't really get it in Dublin. You wouldn't really get it in Cork. Uh, you know, nobody I know, you know, urban people would buy it, you know, farmers buy it and people who maybe live in rural areas, some of them might buy it. At least you can get it in the news agents. They would cover a story like that. But the Irish Times wouldn't, you know, the national publications wouldn't. Local newspapers would cover it, of course. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of local newspapers. But the, the news wouldn't cover it. The only time they might cover it, and there has been, you know, there was thousands of people came, it was maybe about eight years ago, came up to Dublin and uh, came to the Dáil to protest against the um, interconnector. So this is a, uh, a grid above ground um, pylons and cables that run between Republic and the North. Mm-hmm. And it's seen as a sort of a, a, a vital piece of infrastructure for this European electricity grid, uh, which is all about you know, the connectivity. But obviously that connectivity requires material infrastructures. And where, where do they go? Where are they built? They're in these, these, these places where they often don't benefit benefit as much um and there was huge protests against them i mean to get thousands of people from different parts of rural ireland to come up to dublin on buses that they'd they'd pay for that's the sort of thing that like you know you you've got i've been involved in activism urban activism around housing around different issues like anti-austerity 
you know, it's hard to fill a room sometimes with people about issues that are burning issues for people. Mm-hmm. But here in rural areas, it, it does seem they can get organized. They, you know, that they, they, can, they can raise funds, they can mobilize people, they can stop things, they can block things, they can... And, you know, regardless of the point about, you know, the kind of the intelligence that's behind this and the, those kind of points, there is something about their ability to mobilize and organize that... I guess for us, with our you know more kind of activist hat on, or, or trying to speak to kind of social movements and, and types of, of that kind of politics, that's the other thing that we wanted to kind of make some intervention in is that you know it, it should be something that people interested in climate you know action, people interested in social justice, people interested in any of these things that tend to not maybe look at rural places or if they do maybe see them as 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 backward because they're blocking action on climate change because wind farms are about renewable energy that that maybe needs to that 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 needs to maybe change a bit um yeah yeah and i I think when we were talking earlier today you put it really well where you said that it when you start from the lens of climate change the idea of blocking like renewable energy infrastructure to replace dirty, you know, carbon fuels is seen as bad. But then if you start from the basic premise of like democracy and benefiting, you know, and like public benefit for the places where these things happen, then you get a completely different set of like questions and considerations that again, lead towards something that's probably more equitable and that probably will be, um, you know, although not as urgent, although not as like kind of like fast, like in like, you know, kind of quick, visible, spectacular solution, mm. you get things that will in the future be far more, you know, sustainable to use that word. But, um, you know, in terms of, uh, well, you know, as we've been talking about in our new stuff, not to get into the new stuff, but like the, like reparative practices, mm-hmm. right? Like we've been trying to deal with like politics of repair on these sorts of landscapes that have been damaged or destroyed in these places that have already been subject to, you know, these kinds of extractive mechanisms from, you know, whether colonial forces or, you know, global forces or whatever. Yeah. One of the things, one of the things that you write, and I think it's, it's really crucial for, for sort of on, understanding what's going on now in Ireland in 2020 is that there had ne- there's never been really community energy in Ireland in, in the same way that there has been in Germany, Denmark in particular, and then to a certain extent in, in Scotland as well. Um, and it, it seems to me as though the, the same sort of uh, political mobilization that you're talking about, Patty, of being able to uh, get 2,000 people to, to gather in buses and so on is, is exactly the type of energy it could be channeled into uh, community energy projects if, if the, the sort of social infrastructure were there for that. But it seems to me as though so many of the, the anti-wind action groups uh, across rural Ireland have have become opposed to, not all of them, but have become opposed to wind energy in general, um, the the technology as such. W- would you agree with that? And and uh, or or do you have a different reading? I don't. I don't have. I don't have enough to categorically disagree. But mm. I do think, and I was going to say it when we were talking about the rural urban thing, is that um, it, it's there. There isn't a 
you know, one particular type of rural subject, mm-hmm. you know. So even though we've referenced Thomas O'Crean and so on, there's also, um, you know, people who live in rural areas that, uh, you know, weren't born there and raised there. Mm-hmm. It's not like mm-hmm. some kind of, you know, thick, you know, intergenerational sort yeah. of, you know, community. And I think that that's more and more the case, you know. Um, people are, are, are moving to, to rural areas, you know, post-COVID mm-hmm. uh, because of housing being driven out of Dublin, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and I think... Um, I think then there would be, you, you have to talk kind of case by case. Like there is a network window where, which is kind of a, I, I, there should be a phrase for it. Maybe I just don't know it. It's kind of like an internet platform as in it has a website, but I don't, I'm not convinced there's any much substance to it. It's the sort of thing where it's like there is a network, but well, I don't really know what's behind it. I guess they share, you know, some some knowledge and practices and 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 so on. But I think that for the most part, these uh, these uh, this opposition is 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 quite is very much localized. And I think that depending on who is there and what's going on, I think you would find that um, they would be all in for wind energy and wind technology. Uh, the thing that they they're opposed to is. Um, not just the size and the scale of it, but it's, it's, it seems very much about the way in which it's done. I mean, really, you know, like ve- like no, uh, you know, consultation is the word that's used here, mm-hmm. which in itself is a, a terrible word. I mean, it, it needs to be like, you know, decision-making from the get-go. You know, it's like a letter through your door if you're lucky. And I mean, I, I, I know a few people who live closer near enough and, and it's terrible. It's like, you know, they live in a place and then the next day there's generators burning for like, mm-hmm. you know, a year and like a hill is excavated. And, you know, it's not just when the turbine's up, it's the it's all the work that created the, the mean bog landslide. You know, mm-hmm. there's the foundations that put in, there's the concrete. And and I, I think that um, it, it is easy enough for people to be like, oh, NIMBY. You know, some you know, some from a distance. But I think if you're living next to these big wind turbines, so I think the community thing. I think it is interesting that hasn't happened. There's been loads of work by NGOs here, environmental NGOs, because it does seem like a win-win. It's like climate plus community ownership plus democratic, all of those things, and they have had some success in terms of this. The, the 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 current government's energy policy is trying to i don't know if it's done yet or it will happen but the feed-in tariff is going to come in which is obviously the kind of that's the kind of uh, deal breaker you know mm. that you can sell your excess energy that makes it sort of financially viable um but it's kind of like um horse the horse is bolted the horse is you know everything has been set up for you know wind energy which is this like we've talked about so far, it's like it is this sort of you, you say resource. It's this this thing that is, is a value that's valuable in 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 Ireland. That there's a lot of wind, mm. but rather than than you know developing it in the way that say Bordnemona in 1950s, you know, not to get all you know rose tinted and romantic about it, but that was like a, a state uh, uh, entity. Bordnemona was set up, was funded, was given powers to you know, invest in it, uh, public ownership, created loads of jobs. I'm reading a little bit at the moment, there was like, you know, towns were planned, you know, these Mm. incredible architects, garden cities built, you know, 50s and 60s, whatever in the Midlands. You compare that to what's happening with wind. And it was just from the the get-go, it was just, because it was the 90s, it was just private 
all the way, you know. And that's gone from small uh, wind developers to now these these wind farms being part of portfolios of renewable energy, like the Meanbog um, wind farm. That's the the, the the subsidiary is Invis. But if you trace that all the way up, you um, you meet Merrill Lynch. Like it, it, at, at one point, it was it was part. It was owned by Merrill Lynch, effectively. Mm-hmm. You know, if you follow up the ownership um, hierarchy, and that's what's happened. And nobody's again really paying attention. I'm not a, a political economist. I'm not an economic geographer. Uh, I know so, somebody who's doing a PhD, which is kind of around this, and I hope they expose it more. But like, it, it's very hard to even find out like who owns you know the 250 odd wind farms. It's very hard to, to know who is investing in them. Um, and all of these things are essential to uh, climate you know, policy. And yet all we hear is figures on how much megawatts is generated. You mm-hmm. know, the questions mm-hmm. of ownership and control are, are seen as irrelevant. But um, yeah, that's the context for community energy. Yeah. And as the scales of the technologies uh, increase, it, it becomes more and more difficult for uh, community ownership to, to be a reality as well. I mean, especially when you're talking about offshore wind, it's mm. uh, multinationals and state-owned companies from Norway, Denmark, et cetera, the same ones exactly. that were involved in uh, drilling at Korib, you know, uh, yeah. The, the yeah. very same companies. Lucas, did you want to? And then uh, I want to jump in there as well because there was one thing that I um, think you didn't really explicitly mention in in the Mobius strip piece, but I'm wondering what you think about this because I mean, of course, you with with I guess the gesture of the Mobius strip is that like you think that wind and energy, uh, wind energy and uh, and data are sort of these like two complementary sides, but they're kind of a continuum or something like that. I guess that's the visual metaphor. Um, And I was wondering, because with these kinds of the scale of these infrastructures as well, seems and the ownership types of things that you've mentioned seems to be almost pointing in the direction that what's being done there, of course, there will be some energy supplied to like mostly metropolitan areas and so on. But there seems to be almost this like closed loop of um, uh, wind farms sustaining the energy requirements of, uh, of 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 data centers, and then data centers in turn optimizing the energy grid of of, of wind farms. So there is almost like this uh, feedback loop of optimization, where then on, where it seems like you can then, uh, you can you can then have as a spin-off. Uh, types of technologies that you can export to other places in the world where you can say like we based on this system we know how to make more efficient your energy and whatever and like to to sort of to run your energy grid so it seemed and this is something that I find very little mention of in the kind of considerations of like data center or like these types of infrastructure that they're that For me, there is always this gesture of like you're developing something here that's because data is in the mix. It's not the same as like a coal plant, because with that, you're not you you don't have that. Maybe there are some sort of logistics secondary effects where you can say, oh, we as the state company of Ireland who runs all the coal plants, we have a certain knowledge, which then we can sort of export to other places. And there are 
the, some kind of colonial and post-colonial practices of this kind of like consultancy industry, but that seems to be ramped up to a whole other level with 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 tech, uh, um, because it's questionable whether this small secondary slice, let's say, is even still the secondary slice, or whether that's becoming more and more the primary product of this eco-modernization that you're developing types of technology that then you can export and then you can fix India's uh, energy uh, grid and that's the profit the profit is not necessarily in selling like of course it's it's a kind of a it helps in the meanwhile to sell a sort of a green energy image to Irish people but maybe the main gesture is towards something else. That's a really interesting point because, again, this is something that we, like, I don't, I don't even think that when we started writing the Wind article, we'd even like read about the CPPAs yet, the compulsory purchase or com, compulsory corporate corporate purchase corporate power purchase. purchase agreements, yeah, corporate power purchase, um, yeah. So, which are again, it's just the way that they are essentially snapping up capacity. Uh, data center companies are snap up capacity before it even enters the public grid, right? Even though under the guise of, you know, the argument is that uh, demand will then drive more supply, right? That if these companies need more wind energy, that means that more people will build wind energy and they'll keep buying it, right? And it's like, um, again, it just creates this closed circuit. But the something that's been really interesting in terms of the, again, something that we kind of didn't predict when we started was that on these Bordnamona plots, um, and this is kind of speculation because I haven't heard anyone say this explicitly, but it's something that we're kind of noticing that the plan seems to be at the minute to build energy infrastructure out, right? You know, they, they're going to build a wind farm or a biomass plant or a biogas plant or something on these Bordnamona plots. And then also in this one site that we found up in uh, Kalala in Mayo, um, where they plan to build these kinds of energy sites, which will then be used as capital to attract uh, to attract data centers, right? Like they're basically saying that this site will hopefully be able to attract the data center investor, which, and this will become a hub, right? Like this is the language that was thrown around by Bordnamona when we spoke with um, a representative a while ago was the, they were like by the end of, uh, what was it? 2030. I think by the end of the just transition, they were saying that they want to have four data energy hubs built on former Bordnamona lands, which will be, um, you know, a biomass, a biogas, some, some sort of renewable energy site paired with a data center built by, uh, you know, their plan. I think he want, the guy was saying that they want to attract people like digital realty companies, you know, mm -hmm. they want to attract like digital realty or co-location people, because that means that, um, you know, they can kind of have a little bit more say over management, but he was saying that the only interest they'd had was from the hyperscalers who were kind of like, we're going to do what we want. If, if you give us this land, we're going to build our thing and we'll take the energy. Right. Um, which is just interesting. Again, like I, I can't think of anywhere else that I've seen that's done this model yet of building energy and saying, use, take, take this plant that we built for you and you can 
and you can build a data center here, you know? And again, this hasn't been, I haven't seen mm-hmm. this in writing, but it's been something that seems to be the strategy because there keeps being these sites that pop up that are like, you know, uh, simultaneously being used to attract, you know, there's a simultaneous plan for a data center as well as for a biomass or a biogas kind of plan. Um, cause uh, Patty, you went up to the one in Kalala and it was mm. quite similar, although this wasn't Borg Mono. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was similar. I was just going to say something about the eco modernism, uh, modernization thing and the kind of optimization. Um, and I think that you're you're exactly right. I mean, in terms of this kind of the, the discourse of the ideology around tech, one of the things that does seem to be happening too that we've noticed is that, you know, the problem is pointed out that, and this is going back to I think Greenpeace's Clicking Green report was 2012 was the, was either the first one or the first one that got quite a lot of attention, which was trying to say that actually these tech companies, Google, Facebook, they have a, a carbon footprint. They tried to measure it, and that was a, a way they started to get a bit of traction. And then these companies started claiming we'll be 100% uh, renewable, zero emissions by 2026, by 2030. So they set these targets, and then it was like, now you nation states, you know, yeah. show us that you can deliver for us, basically. But um, so it, one of the things is that, you you know, as much as this problem has been pointed out about their emissions, the tech companies are then positioning themselves as the solutions to the problems that they cause. And that that narrative is being played out by by not just by government, but by media mm-hmm. and by environmentalists. You know, it, it's because it's this idea that like, this is how much emissions they have. And then the question is, how will we resolve it? It's like, they need to be more efficient or they need to build renewable energy capacity. And the tech companies are like, grand, we'll do those things. But there's no question around, and you know, this is something that we've not... Um, you know, we haven't gone into any depth, but like, you know, questions of degrowth and what degrowth means in the context of big data. I mean, you know, the, one of the things that obviously data is, is everything and, and, you know, you know, people come at it in different ways, but there's, there seems to be a lot of questions around the politics of big data and, and surveillance and algorithms and algorithmic governance and so on. But there's another question around big data, which is this sort of expanding ecological sort of, you know, regime and so on. And what does that mean to, to try to, build a i don't know not quite a, a, a like a, even a series of some kind of demands or ideas around what degrowth would mean because i mean one of the statistics i saw during lockdown which really got you i think you sent it pat was um that in the month of march in the u.s the amount of energy used to stream the tiger king was the equivalent of the whole of that all of the energy used in Rwanda in 2017 or something. And you know, those are the kinds of comparative figures that are actually quite useful. But, you know, you just think about how, 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 how colossal and difficult it seems that obviously people who are, you know, in the, in the, you know, it's, it seems impossible to imagine scaling down data, but what doesn't seem impossible is that tech companies can come up with like, district heating systems like you know better algorithmic uh, uh you know systems for their the energy systems in their data center more green and those are all the things that are put out there um by critics by the critics of the tech companies and the data centers and i think one thing we would like to try to develop and other people are, are developing and we'd like to be in conversation with is how do you you know what are what is a, a different politics or a different set of demands or how do you go beyond those kind of technical fixes? Um, yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the stats about uh, mass consumption are always quite staggering, but I also think it's, it's important to, to not lay this at the, at, at the feet of the consumer and sort of like admonish. Yeah. yeah, I'm not saying you're doing that, but, but there can be a tendency to sort of like admonish people for uh, w- watching Netflix during, during lockdown or something, <laughs> whereas it, in fact it is the case that it's often like um, large-scale artificial intelligence experiments that are yes. the most like energy-intensive uh, operations of, of data centers, and it's it's not only the sort of quotidian uh, uh, paths of of circulation of of data and e-commerce and so on, but in fact, the actual productive apparatus of of large multinationals itself. Um, yeah, it was the well. same with the, the the figures with the no flying during the the lockdown. That yeah. there were nothing compared to the, you know, the energy that's produced by utilities and so on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and I mean, because it's it's also something again, just in terms of like the the personal responsibility and things like this. Like that's a little bit of the Mobius strip argument as well. Is you know the smart meters and homes and these kinds of things mm. where like you know these again like the spaces where uh, you know, kind of data capture is happening is kind of seen as a point where it's like, this is the place where you can fix something where like they're capturing data about energy use in your home. Mm-hmm. And they're like, Oh, if you just use your washing machine one less day a week. Then, you know, that means that you're going to save this much water, this much energy, whatever, instead of, you know, the, the data center that is being used to collect, to aggregate that data instead of the infrastructures, you know, the kind of like vast assemblage of things that, um, you know, uh, are generating profit for some tech company, right? Because these are always done in in tandem with these tech companies. Because this is something that we've also been trying to think, and a lot I know a lot of people have been thinking about in terms of heating. Um, there's Donal Lally, who uh, is an Irish architect, who has been who wrote a little bit about this, and then uh, Yulia Velkova um, has written about. Uh, what does she call it? The data furnace where like, you know, these data centers and district heating schemes where like, you know, again, one of these like technological fixes is to use data centers to heat, you know, the houses and businesses of the places nearby them. And this is seen as some bastion of, uh, you know, corporate social responsibility and environmental responsibility. Um, you know, which again, it's putting a, it just seems like the cut, like that everything's a little bit upside down. Right. <laughs> you know? And in a way that like, I think that we've been trying to figure out these different pressure points, you know, as opposed to the consumer, obviously, you know, find mm-hmm. a, a pressure point where it's like, this is kind of actually where these things are happening and where you might be able to disrupt this logic in the first place. Um, you know, also, stuff. also I think because like, it's not for lack of trying. I mean, you know, that with the big case of Apple not paying the government was at 9 billion euros and the European 13 billion, yeah. 13 billion in the end. And the European uh, commission or court of justice said that they owed it. And the Irish state said, no, no, they don't, you know, we're not <laughs> going to take tonight. So like, I don't think you need a more egregious or obvious case of like tech companies, you know, writing roughshod over, over, uh, but not only that, but like th- 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 there was some disgruntlement here. But I would say that it was, you know, left politicians, activists saying this is ridiculous. But for the man on the street, woman on the street, it's like, oh, but we need the tech companies. And, 
you know, that they, it's important, you know, if, if they went, we wouldn't have anything. And to a certain extent, it's true, because like we were saying, the whole, you know, the, 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 the economic, you know, integrity, well-being of, of you know, the fabric of, of, of Ireland, not just the state, but so it's built off this foreign capital. And so it is a question of, you can't just switch it off, you know, you can't just, so it is very, very difficult. Um, you know, but I do think that one thing that we can bring to that is that so much of the kind of objection to the tech companies and, and other corporates is around the financial, um, you know, avoidance and evasion. But if you can also add to that the fact that they are benefiting and 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 shaping infrastructures, mm. which had previously been or should be for public good, for their own private, well, then you've got this double you know, you've got it at both ends, you know, they're not paying tax and then they're getting infrastructure built for them. this um this apple um this this like community for apple group athenry uh, that for was apple. athenry for apple um group that was that was basically um in the wake of a data center a massive like or like several data centers being planned in this in this area that citizens actually uh, organized in mass like several hundreds or thousands to 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 like come out in support of Apple and then the project failed and so on. I did find that really interesting in the sense that it really raises a lot of questions about like because because reading that story and I mean maybe you can tell a little bit more about the some of the details that you find relevant of the story, but you read that kind of story and you think it had a good ending because Apple didn't get to build that data center and these like, especially two two individuals who were kind of building this legal case against Apple and then they sort of succeeded in, 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 in slowing down the process enough and for Apple to lose interest basically. But then you, you, you do find yourself wondering like, um, like we can, it feels like if we are for democratic decisions, then we cannot, like we cannot pick and choose between like green and democratic. Like we cannot just anywhere where we think something like green happens, then say like, oh no, it's good that these two individuals managed to sort of uh, um, like that that um, David won against Goliath, uh, the Goliath of, of of Apple. But then you have these like the majority of the community actually wanting Apple to be there, and that sort of uh, so i don't know i guess you want to uh, like how do you how how would you how would you describe that case and like what what intrigues you about it and what do you think are the sort of questions coming out of that out of that case yeah no it's it is it's a case that like kind of seems to speak to a lot of different things but it also kind of wiggles out of every everyone as well, you know, like we, uh, like, you know, I've written the article about it and then Patty and I have referenced it in a couple different things we've written. And every time it's kind of like, 
it represents certain things for some people, other things for other people. But like in the end, you know, it kind of just demonstrates how weird and kind of messy the planning process is in Ireland and anywhere else where something this big is planning to be built, you know, because it was an 850 million euro project, you know, which is huge anywhere, let alone in this like really rural area that really isn't used to this kind of industrial scale. Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess the word that I would bring up and that, you know, we've said already is like, it's, it's really ambivalent. Right. And I was trying to like my first feedback on that piece was when I was trying to navigate, you know, how as like, you know, a leftist, you know, critical scholar to deal with something that, you know, and especially like, you know, I was interviewing these people. I had, a, I had um, you know, a rapport with a few of them, especially, um, you know, and like I still will get, uh, you know, kind of Facebook messages sometimes from people like asking, like, you know, have you heard anything recently? You know, like someone messaged me the other day and asked me, like, you know, has anybody been poking the bear about this? Because like the the land is still owned by Apple. But Apple's just not going to do anything with it until they can sell it. Um, it's currently on. I saw it reported in like Bloomberg or something like this that it's it's for sale, um, and they're, so they're actively shopping it. But you know, like, how do you deal with a case like this where you don't actually agree with the majority of people who? are in this, you know, who, who it really matters to, right. You know, cause it really ultimately matters to the people who live in Athenry, right. You know, if, and then obviously to, um, climate politics more broadly, but it's, so it's just, it was really difficult to kind of navigate these things. And in the end, I think that, you know, the kind of answer is that just trying to navigate how and why this came to be such an important promise for people in the community and how and why, you know, like, again, what might be the kind of prehistory of like how a place in rural Ireland might come to see Apple as something that can provide them what they need, even though Apple has even basically said that they can't. Right. You know, cause this is, you know, and even the counselors, you know, the, when they were asked by journalists for the most part, like, what do you make of the fact fact that it basically won't really provide any long-term jobs what do you make of the fact that it's gonna astronomically drain energy what do you make of the fact of xyz you know over and over and over again and essentially it's the answer is kind of a shrug and it'll be good for the community because it'll bring hope and visibility you know so it's this very affective kind of politics and that to me was the most important part of like trying to understand that affect through, you know, um, like the neoliberalism from below argument was really, really helpful for this, um, you know, in this kind of like popular, uh, you know, popular economies, but she has that chapter at the end. Um, I can't remember what it's called. I don't know if either of you have read this recently. Not recently, no, but yeah, Yeah, I, I think that's, it's such an interesting question, how you approach a group like this is in some ways not too dissimilar from how you as a researcher, might have to approach uh, groups that are opposing wind energy development. You know, like uh, off off the coast of Massachusetts, you have loads of, of commercial fishermen who are opposing offshore wind energy development because it, it conflicts materially with how uh, with their livelihoods and and uh, with. Uh, both in an economic sense, but also in a sense around cultural meaning and and so on and so forth. And it's like, at the same time, we know that this renewable energy is, is 
abs in many ways absolutely necessary um, uh, to be developed, um, maybe not in this particular form, but in, in one form or another. And so be, being able to being able to approach groups whom you whom you might be uh, at odds with or not quite understand why it is that they're motivated in those ways being able to historicize that is is so important and also so important for building the type of popular uh political coalitions that Patty was was just describing as well because how, how are we going to talk to beef farmers you know uh, at the end of the day, and in in Ireland, in the Netherlands, and in, in many countries where farmers are a huge political constituency, being able to being able to do that is is so key. Yeah, yeah. Because another thing that we um, have been trying to figure that Patty and I have been trying to figure out, especially, is the the way that they're kind of based on. And I think we I can't remember if it was him or um, one of you that said it earlier, but this like politics of grievance. Hmm. This the way that the that these places and these kinds of disputes in rural places and you know Athenry included um on kind of both ends of the debate whether it was the objectors mm -hmm. or whether it was the people in the town it's very much a specific grievance based in an incredibly localized set of concerns right mm -hmm. um like an example that we've been bringing up is they tried to build a fiber optic cable off the coast of Mayo. You know, they have a couple of these, but they were trying to build a new one that was going across the seabed of Clare Island, which is a small, uh, very rural, uh, just kind of disconnected island. And the islanders wanted something like a spur on the cable to provide them access to the internet or something like this to for them to like be on board because they were like, otherwise it's going to disrupt our seabed, it's going to disrupt fishing, whatever. And the company basically said no. And so what the fishermen did was like put forth a series of just like kind of outlandish objections to the cables, you know, and my favorite one was they said that uh, a cable could create a jaws like scenario that could drag a fishing, like a fishing boat to the bottom of the ocean. And it, like, it, they're just, it's kind of hilarious to read this document because they're just really being a pain in the ass mm. to this company that's trying to develop this. And again, like when we were trying to figure out what to make of this, it's, it's, you know, it's grievance. It's like this one thing where it's like, all right, so there's this global project that, we don't really agree with for a number of reasons mm. and that we don't really want, you know, and that really isn't benefiting us in any material way whatsoever. Um, and they're making this like small claim on this kind of piece of global infrastructure, like something that is ultimately quite small, even if the reality is that this isn't really how it works to just build a spur off a fiber optic cable to provide broadband. Right. Even if the reality is that this doesn't work, what they're doing is making this claim on something to get a share of this thing. Um, and that ultimately resonates in an economy where everything is kind of run on foreign direct investment, like everything is run on foreign capital. And the fact that this that these benefits, that all of these things, that all these infrastructures are being basically just given to these companies to make profits, the, you know, leftists in the city claim this, right? You know, when they're talking about rights to housing because of all these, you know, vulture financial firms that are buying up housing and Airbnb and these sorts of things, you know, these like urban housing activists are very, very good at articulating who they're up against. 
as are these rural movements. They're very, very good at articulating this big, you know, and kind of understanding how to stop it. And to me, I think that, and again, I think Patty kind of like gestures at this as well in quite a provocative way. Like, how do you get these two things to kind of speak to one another without flattening, you know, kind of understanding how these things are connected ultimately. Um, and also, you know, to speak to the right wing populism, to avoid these places from being kind of brought under the tent of these very opportunistic right wing groups that, you know, are just waiting to frame it in terms of xenophobia. It, right. You know, they're just waiting for it to be about, you know, this kind of nativism and, um, you know, for their particular projects. And how do you kind of like how does the left make something, you know, kind of like not necessarily bring bring people under the tent, but how do they deal with these things in a way that's not just like kind of dismissive for the kind of like you know bigger politics of whether it's environmentalism or like anti-capitalism, anti-globalization, whatever. As I was reading your 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 piece and on this very strange case, which I think we're sort of intuitively more um, more ready to hear the kind of narrative of a rural group opposing some big development, but then this case of like a rural group actually um, strongly inviting and soliciting, and even like as you said, like these like citizens directly getting in touch with Apple itself or like, um, and, uh, and, 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 and even sort of suspecting you maybe as a North American to be a sort of like, Oh, is this, is this someone who we could go through? Is this someone who could, who's our uh, links to Apple, uh, making direct demands rather than, and I guess in that sense, not acting as citizens of the province and the States and so on first and, seeing the, the multinational company as this foreign agent, but actually feeling... Well, it actually, it actually expresses in a way the, their profound understanding of Irish political economy <laughs> as well. Yeah, exactly. Is, is like that the, they probably understand Irish political economy Let, a lot more clear than those who would appeal directly to the state. And I I, don't, I think that's one of the points that you, that you made, Pat. It, it's kind it, of a, let, let me speak to your manager kind yeah. of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I mean, in these places, like the um, one of the biggest things to come out of the out of the Athenry case, especially for like kind of like center right, you know, like uh, like like Patty was saying, like Ireland is quite moderate as a generality, um, and it's quite center right, you know, like in terms of like both of the main ruling political parties are essentially ideologically identical, um, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, and have been for a while on this kind of center right spectrum. And a lot of these places, you know, kind of, there's a very neoliberal common sense. And so coming out of this was like, the planning system is broken. That if this is something, if two objectors can stop this in spite of 2000 people in a town wanting it, that means that the planning system is broken. And they understood this at the time, right? And like speaking with um, a couple of the people from Athenry for Apple afterwards, they even thought that like, the fixes that the state was doing to basically steamroll opposition, they were like, that's not enough. 
to make sure that this doesn't happen in the future, which is just fascinating. Cause again, it's kind of, they're like, just no faith in the state to provide what they need, even though, you know, like how he was saying again, like there are kind of basic social services available in Ireland that in a lot of countries there aren't obviously, and especially post-colonial countries. Um, but when it comes down to it, they still don't, you know, in a place like Athenry, which was quite, um, you know, it's rural, rural places did not recover as quickly from the recession as, uh, you know, Dublin and Cork and Galway, but they, you know, so they don't really see the state as being something that's going to provide them what, and again, this is a, I'm just kind of reiterating a point that I make in that paper, but they didn't really see it as something that could provide them what they need only in the sense that they might be able to like create a foothold for a company that was going to do that. Right. And again, and it's not necessarily about services. It's about hope. It's about some kind of like feeling of connectivity, some kind of feeling of, you know, having a future in this place, right. In a place that where the population uh, probably, you know, is definitely not growing. You know, yeah. there's and a I, lot was, of- I was about to say it has so much to do with the emigration question as well. And just the, the idea of newness and so-called reinvigoration uh, that can be brought by a, a global actor uh, like Apple, you know, uh, coming from Silicon Valley, one of the places where many of these immigrants are, are going to, you know, um, and it's yeah, it's looking looking for that spark that that might reinvigorate not only that town but but rural Ireland more broadly and and keep people there, you know. Um, in terms of the field research and everything, and, and the age, were were most of the people involved in uh, Apple for Athenrise sort of like middle aged? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, everyone I spoke with, at least. Um, and in the kind of, you know, if you see the press material, I wasn't there at any of the demonstrations mm-hmm. or anything, but seeing the photos and the press materials and stuff, it's, it reflects, I think, the demographic of the town more generally, which mm-hmm. is, you know, quite an, again, in these places, young people leave, whether for university or for work elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there was a period during the recovery where a lot of people were returning, you know, like, especially um, mm-hmm. I'm in my late 20s. And a lot of people that I knew um, who had been living abroad were going back because one, their visas were up. But two, they were like, mm-hmm. seems like things have picked up again. Seems like there will be work. Seems like, you know, um, but then obviously they come back to Dublin and the rents mm-hmm. and everything. Everything are out of control, um, essentially impossible to live. So they end up, a few of them do and have ended up like, you know, moving back to the rural towns that they come from. Right. Which is a whole different political economy as well. And then especially with, uh, you know, COVID, a lot of people ending up back at home, but, um, that's a bit of a tangent, uh, in terms of the, yeah, in, especially back in like 2017, 2018, when I was doing this field work, the, uh, the makeup of these, of the rural towns that I was in for the most part is pretty aging. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is a kind you. of, it, it almost, uh, uh, it all, they, because one of the last guests we had was Alf Hornborg, who, uh, is a, like, a I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but kind of world systems theory. And like he, in one of his books, he has this, in, in, in one chapter, he starts the chapter by talking about the cargo cults, uh, in like Pacific Islanders and, and sort of like talking about them as having from their viewpoint, quite an accurate, 
like or quite a profound understanding of the, the world market or something that because in in some ways they were like clearly these these like useless white Europeans who are living with us clearly like they they didn't make the wealth that they have themselves so that there needs to be some other entity and some other like that provides them with this wealth and so on and like it almost reminded me of that kind of of that kind of uh, the, the, that that being the kind of wisdom like and i mean it sounds like i'm downplaying the the a local community in ireland by comparing them to like the cargo cults but i actually kind of mean that as a compliment that it is this sort of like almost like a no nonsense like come on we know how this works like um, because I mean, you see this, and and it is. I think the difficult thing is like, because I don't know. From my point of view, like, had they gotten the Apple uh, um, uh, um, data center, like, would that have really helped? Like, probably not. And uh, and they actually know that. Like, that's actually something that is not contrary to their knowledge. So it's not like we know better what's good for them. But then it seems to be at the point where like they have a certain understanding of how it also works in other in other places where a lot of this garnering of uh, or attraction of big names has to do with like putting a region back on the map and these kinds of and these kinds of things i mean just thinking about the the ridiculous and very uncritical like almost like like outright celebration of when Tesla announced that they were going to, that they were going to do their gigafactory in Brandenburg just outside of Berlin it was just bizarre in many ways to me, but that's, that's very much so like, I think because one could read your article and, and just sort of judge these people and be like, Oh, these are just kind of like disgruntled and, and like, and disaffected, like very, um, like there's oftentimes, and I, I know in Ireland this might not be the case because maybe they're not picked up by like a, a kind of a right wing party where then the liberal establishment develops a real resentment towards them. But that I hear that a lot in Germany that people talk about like AfD, like the right wing party voters as like the old. Oh, they are just the losers and now like the losers are now turning to the right and so on. But um, in, in some ways, I think one could, one could read your article as like, Oh, this is just the losers of globalization. And now they're trying to sort of hold their hand out for a crumb from the, from this like almost Royal overlord of Apple. But, and that is in a way true, but they also seem to be quite conscious of that almost. And that makes it into this, into this quite conflicting narrative where, you, where it's not that they're just, uh, that they're just um, ignorant of these things, but they still do it. So it's, it's quite, it, for being such a, um, for being such a, a small story or such a, such a, uh, such a particular case it actually if you if if you read it in that way it actually does tell you something about like the weirdness of this of this globalized economy i guess yeah i, I really appreciate that that's a really um like that's a really good point and and the weirdness is something that like it, like patty and i i remember this is one of the first words that we we're using and trying to figure out to describe the stuff that we were looking at because, you know, I just, it, it's weird. It like, it's so hard to kind of rein in, in, in a way that really kind of fits certain critical molds because there's just a lot of different things. Right. Um, because it's such a global 
phenomenal. It's such a global story that took place in such a small place. You know, like this is a town of like Athens has 4,000 people in it. Like that's a, a tiny town. Um, and then I think that, so just to kind of get to the, like the way that people see it, there is a bit of a, like we were kind of saying, like these rural um, protests and things like this are seen as naive. They're seen as quite, you know, like even friends of mine would kind of see even friends of mine from the region, right? Like from Galway and like rural Galway, we're kind of like, oh yeah, like they're not, they, they just don't really know what's going on, right? And and not in a way that was really like uh, very, in a way that was more like they saw, they understood the place where these people came from. And they were like, I would have never come to that conclusion to reach out to Apple, Right. Um, and then obviously, you know, you get to Dublin and you get a lot of people saying that it's dumb and that they're naive, et cetera. So like, you kind of have these, like, even within the rural spaces, there is these conflicting kind of narratives of what to actually do towards, you know, big capital. Right. And Athena, I think was a really interesting case of this because at the same time that, um, you know, there's the rejection of bigness for a lot of these groups Athen Rye was kind of again, like coming from the same place was an embrace of bigness, right? Where it was a kind of like we've been built over, kind of forgotten, as opposed to being like, you know, oh, this isn't going to benefit us. They chose to see it as something that would benefit them, right? And I don't think that this was necessarily only Apple being Apple and the state being like really good propagandists. I think that there was a genuine sentiment in the town that they had chosen that Apple was going to be the thing that would help them out. Right. And in a way that I think is, is really powerful and is like really important. Um, but then also again, speaks to, you know, cause it's not like Athenry isn't, you know, some town on the bogs. Athenry is quite, is pretty close to uh, Galway. Right. It's And also, you know, it's a place that it, there's a train stop there's, and then you get to Ireland in general and, you know, half of, half of the people there have family in the U S right. Or they have family in Brit. So, and like a lot of people are quite widely traveled. So again, there's not a naivety to how they're seeing these things. They very much understand the global and they understand the kind of scale of these things. And again, like you were saying, like they way better get the political economy um, of how these things work and especially the planning system. But it's, it's quite significant that, the that the choice was to go with apple and to me that says something about the kind of common sense that's become i think patty was saying like that's become a little bit like atmospheric that's become a little bit part of the climate of ireland in general uh, around business around um you know investment is that the common sense is that what else are you going to do i guess then attract these you know then kind of get this investment but. and I, I almost wonder if the sort of like I mean, this is also part of me, but that I guess like this is where the liberal in us sort of revolts and sort of is disgusted by this kind of like, oh, how could, reaching out to Apple directly and like this is just, how could you be so desperate? And this is the sort of thing where like, it almost reminds me of like, how like after like, it's 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 almost where you're sort of confronted back with the, with the logical, uh, with something taken to its logical extreme 
which you're very, which that liberal in you is very much a part of, right? And that's why it's so confronting and disgusting, is because that 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 type of like worship of tech companies and like and this kind of even this image, like you don't even have to be an active worshiper of of of, of them, but this, but it's it it comes back to you in this very cringy manner if 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 someone takes that to its logical extreme it's almost like you know like how whatever in in like rural mexico they would give coca-cola to babies and then you like even though like coca-cola ran these extreme advertisement campaigns and basically tried to make coca-cola cheaper than water everywhere that's the point where you're like oh shit they're taking this to the logical like ex- the, to, to 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 its extreme and then it comes back to you in this like very eerie and, and, and kind of confrontational manner. Um, mm-hmm. Something the, quite disturbing about that. Yeah, it, re- it reminds me of this quote that you guys actually included in the ENP article. Uh, I guess it was from Sean Lamass uh, or something. You write, the Irish Minister for Industry and Commerce in 1958 said, quote, we aim to convince U.S. industrialists that Ireland is the best possible location because of its attitude to private enterprise. The more profits they make, the better we will like it. <laughs> and it's like, it, it's it's not just the attitude of the state, and that's partly what your Culture Machine article gets at, is this is a really widespread, deeply baked-in attitude, you know, across certain rural communities and across uh, especially these sort of suburban ones that that you're talking about where so much of the industrial development took place away from the labor unrest and the radical politics of the immediate environment of Dublin and of Cork and so on these sort of yeah su- suburban environments where that attitude is it, the more profits uh, they make the better we will like it and it's like Talk about cargo cults and the, you know, Shannon free enterprise zone and so on, when they no longer need to pass through for refueling, need to find another way to sort of figure out how to how to make them land. And it's the tax regime and it's all of the ecological regulations, uh, which we talked about at, at the very beginning of this recording. Um, but it's, yeah, one of the things that, that we learned from Alf Hornborg is this principle of sort of anthropological symmetry, where, where we don't look at the cargo cult and say, oh, that's, you know, so naive and so on. But we, we, we try to apply an understanding that, that they might have of the world to, to Ireland, to Sweden, to Germany and so on. And it's, it's yeah, when, when you look at this idea of capturing FDI, uh, is is when this this notion of the cargo cult really becomes quite vivid. Yeah, absolutely. And the phrase that I so like in the Sean Lamass point is really interesting because he, you know, this is it's kind of like a uh, what's the word? Not a pseudo history, but it's kind of like a, a popular history that Sean Lamass like you know was the foundational person for the liberalization of Ireland, right? You know, his a rising tide lifts all boats. And, you know, this is something that I've used in, uh, it's, it plays quite a big role in my dissertation as this kind of myth of Sean Lamass and like early liberalization and stuff. Um, but it is this interesting, like, it is kind of this like er moment, like this er quote about, you know, economic common sense in Ireland is rising tide lifts all boats.
one thing about that article, though, that little blog post that I wrote was about, um, um, so it was about the water charges movement, uh, anti-water charges movement, which was which was huge. You know, it was like the mm. the, the the big anti-austerity protest that happened in Ireland, and, and it, it didn't happen for years. You know, mm. because austerity came in two thousand and nine, ten, and it was two thousand and thirteen, fourteen when that happened. And everyone, you know, there was the famous placards in Greece of like, "Where are you, Irish people? Like, what are you doing?" Or you know, and uh, it took the water charges, but so that was huge. It was a huge event, and at the time, it wasn't really you know framed so much in terms of um, eco austerity. I think eco austerity is kind of a term that's come maybe a bit later than that, but it was. I mean, it was a tax on um, on on water, and it was nominally put forward as a way of making water users more efficient. So going back to the kind of smart meter stuff, there was also these water meters, smart water meters being put in, and what that was missing was that there was huge consumers of water, um, not least data centers, um, and also the public infrastructure was was crippled, and the finance shouldn't necessarily come from from individuals who are already getting screwed every which way with austerity. So anyway, there was that, and then there was the farmers, uh, the beef farmers, who protested in two thousand and nineteen. And, you know, it seems a bit odd to compare them. And I'd say that partly the point of that blog was just to be a bit provocative because they, they do seem poles apart. But the beef farmers, unlike dairy, is a, is a, is a, is a, there's very little income, very little money. Mm. Um, there's no livelihood in it. And the reason I was trying to talk about that in the context of eco-austerity is that farmers are, are being sort of held responsible for a lot of environmental problems. But again, the farmer is just one part of this commodity chain, which is not about foreign direct investment so much. It's an indigenous industry. It's the only kind of major indigenous industry that's in Ireland. But it is part of these global um, um, you know, entities, which are, they came out of the cooperatives, the dairy cooperatives, but they're now, you know, global, uh, you know, companies that are part cooperative but are also have, uh, are publicly listed and have shareholders and so on so it's this complex political economy and the farmer at the end of it makes fuck all and basically is just producing this raw material which goes into this ingredients industry and the money is made way down the value chain mostly by marketing and things like that mm. anyway the, 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 the making that comparison i think in the context of of, of Irish politics, which is maybe seems a bit specific. Um, but in the last election, which was January, February of last year, so a year ago, um, there had there was an interesting sort of uh, push towards the left. So Sinn Féin did very well. And the Greens did well. But partly the Greens did well because there were some candidates, people like Saoirse McHugh is, is very interesting. She's based in Mayo, so she's a rural candidate who's green. She didn't get a seat. But I th- I'd say she was instrumental in, and, and, and a, a couple of others, Lorna Bogue, uh, um, who's in Cork, of kind of helping people imagine that maybe there could be a, a, a non, like a left green party, basically. And when they got elected, there was a split really in the party. Um, and there was the kind of old bastion of the Green Party, which is just about protecting the environment uh, and is sort of neoliberal. And then there was the more progressive end. And what's happened over the last year is that more progressive end has just been shed 
like at, at every level. So even yesterday, two more councillors quit. Mm-hmm. So you've had a number of politicians have quit the party. Activists have quit the party. A lot of the youth, uh, young Greens have quit. And th- what's left is just this, you know, it's just this, I don't know what you want to call it, like, because they're the minor party in a coalition. And you know, they're getting bicycle lanes and, you know, there's all sorts of jokes about them. But what they've done, which is more serious, is they've absolutely destroyed uh, within a kind of, a, I think, a more popular politics of trying again to, to, to rebuild that idea that there can be a kind of a left progressive green. So Ireland is far away from a kind of sunrise movement, mm-hmm. it's far away from like Green New Deal um, you know, that those kinds of discourses that have mobilized people, I'd say what you have here is a complete like uh, amongst people who might vote for the, the for the left or might vote against a kind of neoliberal Fine Gael, Fine Gael, Fall parties. Those individuals or those people, those communities, I would say are just like will never vote you know, green. And so what you're left with is, I don't know what you're left with, but I think there might be, because there's four years left to the next election, there might be with those people who've left the greens, who understand some of the stuff we've talked about, who are connected to rural communities, who are involved in different kinds of movements, who tend to be community-based activists, for there to be some kind of a platform built. And I think, you know, as much as electoral politics is problematic, there's something about the idea of having three or four years to build that. Mm. That mightn't be a bad thing. You know, it's 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 not t- for tomorrow or it's not in a year. And I, I, I think that there is a, you know, there's enough people within different circles who are like coming at this from a different angle and, you know, recognize that there needs to be, yeah, there, there needs to be some kind of like left green articulation. Um, yeah. And then you yeah. go on, Lucas. Sorry, in your uh, in your in your blog post, you also kind of I guess between a couple of articles that I read, it kind of came through that there isn't this phenomenon of a of like a new right extreme right party in Ireland of of of, of recent, which as we have in Germany or in other other countries in in Europe. And so it seems like these, especially the rural part of this comparison that you made and that potential, like (laughs) the hope for uh, sort of solidarity or an alliance between those those, uh, who are sort of on, uh, find themselves maybe on the same end, but in very different locations and for very different reasons of this kind of eco-modernization that is being pushed through by the, liberal neoliberal elites and under the under the banner of uh yeah eco-modernization so like good in 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 all terms apparently and this aesthetic as well but that you you say there that they they are often especially the rural ones are often presented as like opposed to the environment and this whole i mean that's very much connected with the aesthetic right like i mean will and i often joke about like that that there is even this um notion of being for or against the environment is such a banal level of, 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 of politics, but it, it, it seems to, it has such a strong hold on our imaginary of what like the rural population is. And then, um, but then you also say that like oftentimes their concerns articulate themselves as in, in, in quite a defensive manner that they're at least trying to hold on to the little that they have left after like mm-hmm. uh, over a decade of austerity post the, uh, the financial crisis of 2007, 8, 9. And um, 
I guess this is kind of also like a question around like populist politics and whether if 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 there is still an absence of that sort of new right party that could that could sweep up some of those disaffected uh, 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 voters, maybe there is a chance of 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 mm-hmm. some other um, uh, some other political direction emerging there. Yeah, I mean, about that, I mean, there is, there's an Irish Freedom Party, you know, that there is, there's been some attempts to try and, um, I guess, and some pretty significant attempts, like during the lockdown, there was, there was protests Mm -hmm. around wearing masks, like in other places. And there were these sort of factions of the Irish Freedom Party that, um, you know, left activists have been very good at tracking and showing and making clear like you know this is who they are keep an eye out for them because their strategy is very clear to go in and try to co-opt uh you know people's sort of grievances about wearing a mask and -hmm. try to articulate it towards their politics so there are those kinds of factions but in the last election one thing that was good as well as the kind of you know sort of pitch left was that a lot of a lot of the candidates there wasn't a lot of them but those candidates that did go up uh you know for the irish freedom party or for some of these uh you know conservative more kind of socially conservative i wouldn't say that they were kind of you know uh you know they were kind of splinters of fine gael um if anything they didn't do well they they didn't do well uh, you know in the in the elections i think that's a good sign people weren't voting for them but the other thing i'd say about that is that the levels of disaffection and austerity as bad as it has been and was like the irish economy i mean it has a lot of its problems but like it's nothing like the uk it's 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 like you know there, there are like inequality is increasing but in terms of like some of the basic sort of components of it, I mean, like the state, like the economy is doing all right, partly because our biggest export is pharmaceuticals. You know, that's obviously doing well. Uh, you know, tech companies have been doing well. They haven't been hit that much. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's like there's something about Ireland's like moderateness. And I remember often talking about this with another friend of mine who we used to write quite a lot and do quite a lot of activism together. And I remember he had this theory, which was partly that like stuff never kicked off here because partly his argument was that it was partly a legacy of the kind of the, the, of, of the church and the state. And there's a way in which that the, 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 the post-colonial state partly through the church is quite closely like connected to the people. And so there's a sense in which shit doesn't hit the fan. Like in Spain, there was loads of evictions and it's like, why did you let all those evictions happen? Clearly it was going to cause like massive demonstrations. There's very few evictions here, you know, and it's partly because there is this sort of, it's almost like this balancing thing. It's like, okay, something rises up here and it's sort of placated. It's, it's put down. And I don't have a huge theory about that, but I do think that these kinds of political cultures are, 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 are important to bear in mind that, you, you know, you can't just say that obviously there's kind of like right-wing conservative politics arising in other places, but the form it's going to take here is definitely going to be mediated by the mm. kinds of political cultures that are here. And, um, for that same reason, I think we're not going to get some kind of uh, left, like it, it, like a sunrise movement or, a, you know, or a, a Green New Deal. I, I think it's, it's very far removed. But at the very least, I think that there are enough people who've left the Green Party 
people who are increasingly concerned about environmental issues who are younger, particularly more like younger climate activists that, you know, have shown at, at, you know, time and time again, like really articulate radical demands, understand what's going on way better than like, you know, older green politicians and so on. And on the other hand, you've got left groups that are recognizing more and more that environmental issues are something that people can be you know, mobilized on, whether it's like privatization of waste services or data centers. So I think that there's loads of places where there can be coalitions and meeting of minds. So I mean, that's, that's hopeful. <laughs> <laughs>